Last week, um, I debuted my bifocals for the very first time to help me in preaching. And some of you were so kind to encourage me that there's a lot more as I age I can look forward to. <laughs> oh, how I appreciated that. Reminded me of a story of an old fellow who loved to play golf. In fact, this guy was 80 years old, but he could still hit the ball well. But his eyesight wasn't what it used to be, and so what he did is he developed um, some golfing buddies at the golf club who would ride around with him, and when he would hit the ball, these buddies would watch where the ball went. And uh, one particular day came, and he was there at the clubhouse uh, and uh, waiting for his buddies to show up, and none of them were coming. And it was a beautiful day. I mean, it was unbelievable. What a day for golf. I mean, absolutely still out there, perfect day for playing golf. And so this this 80-year-old guy, he's just getting frustrated, and he's pacing in the clubhouse back and forth, you know, just agonizing over whether any of his buddies are going to show up or not. And this other older guy sees him, and he comes over to the 80-year-old, and he said, what's wrong? And so the 80-year-old begins to explain his dilemma. He says to him, you know, well, I, I love to play golf, and I can hit the ball still really well, but um, I have these buddies, and they usually ride with me so that when I hit the ball, they can tell me where it went. And this second guy is actually older than the 80-year-old. And even though he is, he says, I'll tell you what, I'll ride with you. I have had Lasix laser eye surgery. I can see 20-20. I can see like a hawk. I'll go with you. You hit the ball. I'll watch where it goes. 80-year-old goes, this is great. Gets up to the first tee, 80-year-old pops the ball, he hits it really well. He turns to his newfound spotter and says, did you see it? He says, yeah, I saw it. I saw it, I watched it all the way till it stopped rolling. And the 80-year-old goes, where is it? And this older spotter paused for a moment and then said, I forget. <laughs> So I've got a lot to look forward to <laughs> as I get older. But I haven't forgotten where my Bible is, and I hope you haven't forgotten your Bible today. And if you have it, would you open it up, please, and turn in your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter number 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible, and in the back portion of that, turn to page 142, and you will be at 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Now in Oklahoma City, we have recently become the proud owners of an NBA, National Basketball Association professional team. And uh, if you are an NBA fan, you might recognize a coach who used to coach a number of years in the NBA by the name of Cotton Fitzsimmons. And uh, there was a time as an NBA coach that Cotton Fitzsimmons was very frustrated with his team because they were struggling in a great way. And so he hit upon this idea, this motivational idea. Before the game, he gave him a speech, and the speech was centered around the word pretend. And he said to them, gentlemen, when you go out there tonight, instead of remembering that we are in last place, pretend we're in first place. Instead of being in a losing streak, Pretend we're in a winning streak. Instead of this being a regular season game, pretend this is a playoff game. 
And with that, the team went out onto the basketball court and were soundly beaten by the Boston Celtics. Well, of course, Cotton Fitzsimmons was a little frustrated about the loss, but one of his players came up to him, slapped him on the back, and said, cheer up, coach, pretend we won. <laughs> yeah. Well, pretend can only get you so far. But you know what I find? I find that pretend is the response that many in the Christian believing community seem to have when it comes to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Notice what it says there. It says, for we, speaking to the believing community, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It just seems that in the believing community, we have this tendency to pretend like that verse isn't really there. We don't really want to think about how every believer would be evaluated by how they choose to live their life. We like to pretend that the Bible doesn't really talk about the issue of rewards and, and losing rewards. It just seems to me that there is a disconnect that goes on. We just seem to be disconnected from the fact that the choices that come in our life after we come to Christ will have obviously some effect on the quality of life as we live it out on the planet, but we often will try to pretend, well, I don't think it's really going to have any effect in eternity. I mean, you trust Christ for salvation, you're, you're headed to heaven, but there's not really going to be, if you get on your way to heaven, any differences among those who've trusted Christ in heaven, and yet we see 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You know, if you're, a study, uh, if you're a student of your Bible, you will know that over and over again in the New Testament, there is an emphasis that as we walk through life, we need to also be busy about keeping our eye on eternity. We live down here, but we want to keep our eye on eternity. And that's important for all of us, that we are keeping our eye on eternity. And part of that involves rewards and the loss of rewards. Part of that involves a coming personal evaluation by the Savior. And again, what happens to some people is they come across passages like this, they come across verses in the New Testament, and rather than looking closely at them, trying to understand them, trying to integrate them into their understanding of the Christian life, it's more like, let's just pretend that they're not there. Let's just sort of ignore them and go on. And so what I want to do is I want to take several weeks and talk about keeping your eye on eternity. And what I want to do over these weeks is zoom in on this issue of rewards. To zoom in and have a better understanding of this evaluation that we would get at the judgment seat of Christ. What does all of this mean? What ramifications does this have for how I live my life and how you live your life? So we want to talk about keeping your eye on eternity. Now here's today's plan. 
We're basically going to do three things. Number one, we're going to see that rewards are real. Number two, we're going to see that rewards can be lost. Number three, we're going to look at what reality is. And we're going to see two prongs of reality. So we're going to look at rewards are real. We're going to look at rewards can be lost. And we're going to look at reality. Now, I hope you have your fingers limbered up. I hope you're warmed up by the second hour of the morning and you're going to be ready to work your way through your Bible because we've got the privilege of looking at a lot of Scripture today. So I hope you are ready to go. And the first thing we want to look at is that rewards are real. Rewards are real. Jesus said so and Paul said so. So turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 5. And we're going to just look rapid fire at a number of passages where we see that rewards are real. That's what Jesus said. And if you look at Matthew chapter 5, I want you to notice verse 11. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Then I want you to notice chapter 6, the first verse of chapter 6. Rewards are real. Jesus said so. Notice he says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And then notice, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, you my followers, when you pray, go in your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will what? Will reward you. Rewards are real. Jesus said so. Look at verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, as my followers, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Rewards are real, Jesus said so. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 41. Matthew 10, 41. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. 
Rewards are real. Jesus said so. Look at, uh, skip one gospel and go to the gospel of Luke in chapter number 6. Luke chapter number 6 and verse 35. Luke 6, 35. A passage that many of us are familiar with. Jesus says to his followers, love your enemies. Do good. Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. You do those things, and you will have a great reward. Look at chapter 14. Chapter 14 of the Gospel of Luke. Rewards are real. Jesus said so. Chapter 14, verse 13. When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind... And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Rewards are real. Jesus said so. And Paul said so. Now, we've already looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be back there in a few moments, but I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Rewards are real. Now, I want you to notice in chapter number 3, beginning with uh, verse 8, he's talking about ministry, various kinds of ministry you can do. He says, now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but notice this, each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, the picture here is is that there's a foundation. When we trust Christ, there's a foundation that is laid, which is the foundation of Christ, But then every believer builds on that foundation, and the picture is each of our lives are a building, okay? That's the idea here. And he says in verse 12, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he's built on it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved so as through fire. Rewards are real. Jesus said that and and Paul said that. Turn with me a little bit further left in your Bible to Romans chapter number 14. Romans chapter number 14. Rewards are real. Chapter 14 and verse 10. He's appealing to the believers and he says to them here, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, 
at that time, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Rewards are real. And very clearly, Jesus said that, and Paul said that. In fact, other authors of the New Testament said that. I want you to go to the very end of your Bible, very, very end of your Bible, to Revelation chapter number 22. Revelation chapter number 22. And what's happening is, this is a look into the future, and the idea is that Jesus is getting ready to come back. He says in verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. And then notice what it says. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Rewards are real. In fact, if you look over at Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, a few books to the left from the book of the Revelation, to Revelation chapter 11, we learn that Moses, as he was choosing to follow God in his relationship with God, was motivated by reward. It made a difference in his choices in life. Look at chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ, the Messiah, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The first thing we want to see today is that rewards are real. The second thing that we want to see is that rewards can be lost. Rewards can be lost. Turn just a little bit to the right in your Bible to the book of 2 John. You got 1 John and then, obviously, 2 John. So 2 John, there's really only one chapter here. I want you to notice verse 8. Verse 8. We've seen that rewards are real. Now we're seeing that rewards can be lost. And so the Apostle John writes to the believing community and he says to them, to you and to me, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. I want you to get a full reward, but it's possible that you may not because rewards can be lost. Now, I want us to return to one of those passages we read of of the Apostle Paul's a little earlier, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Remember, we talked a little bit about the imagery there, that the foundation that is laid when we trust in Christ is himself. And the picture is that each of our lives are a building. And we can, and we will be, we all will be building on that building. And if you look at chapter 3 again, verse 12, it says that there are two kinds of materials that you can build on the foundation of Christ with. One is gold, silver, and precious stones. It would be like gold, silver, and marble. Things that will stand the test of time. Or I can choose to build on my foundation with wood, hay, and straw. But here's the point. 
Each man's work, as we build on that foundation, will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the picture here is whatever we've built on that foundation of Christ in our building, which is our life, will be tested with fire. There's going to be fire that will reveal what is really there. It will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, verse 14, which he's built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, some of the decisions we make, the choices we make in life, building with wood, hay, and straw, if it's burned up, he will suffer loss. In context, the loss of what? It's the loss of reward. He will suffer the loss of reward, but he himself doesn't mean he doesn't go to heaven. Of course he goes to heaven or she goes to heaven. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So the first thing we're seeing is that rewards are real. They are real. And the second thing we're seeing is that rewards can be lost. And now we're ready to look at what reality is, to sort of get to the bottom line. And reality is an evaluation is coming. An evaluation is coming. Let's go back to the very first verse we looked at in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Rewards are real. They can be lost. Reality is an evaluation is coming. Notice in verse 9 he says this, we have as our ambition as we live out our Christian life to be pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The term here that is translated judgment seat is the term bema in the original language, B-E-M-A. And I want us just to have a feel for what the Corinthians were hearing by understanding what a bema was. Bema was a, a raised platform. In fact, if you go to the ancient ruins of Corinth today, as I had the opportunity to do uh, back in the middle 70s, you will see the Bema still there. It still exists. It was a raised platform. And one of two things would happen on that raised platform. One example of what would happen on a Bema was that legal cases would be judged at the Bema. Uh, for example, turn with me to the Gospel of John in chapter number 19. We'll see one illustration of a bema happening where a legal case was to be judged. And this was a situation in John chapter 19 of Pilate getting ready to judge a case with Jesus. And notice chapter 19, verse 13, it says, When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and Pilate sat down on the bema at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabatha. And so you have here Pilate sitting on the bema, this raised platform where a legal case was to be judged. Now, if you'll turn with me in the book of Acts, we see another illustration of the bema as a, a raised platform where a legal case was to be judged. And in Acts chapter 18, uh, beginning with verse 12, we have 
Gallio, who was proconsul, getting ready to judge the legal case with Paul. And in verse 12 of chapter 18, it says, But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the Bema, the raised platform for a legal case to be judged. And if you'll notice in verse 16, a lot of things start to happen here, but uh, Galio in verse 16 drives them away from the Bema. And it says, They then all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the Bema. But Galio was not concerned with any of these things. So a Bema was a, a raised platform from which legal cases were judged. And you, you can just look it up later in Acts chapter 25, verses 6, 10, and 17. We have Festus with Paul uh, climbing onto the Bema, the raised platform where legal cases were judged. So that's one way that the Bema was used. A second way that the, the Bema was used was it was used, that raised platform, um, for rewards to be dispensed from the athletic games that they would have in those days, somewhat like our Olympic games. And right in the area around Corinth, they would have what was called the Isthmus Games, the athletic games there. And what would happen after the Isthmus Games were over is that there would be someone who would climb up onto the Bema, the raised platform, and only the winners would appear, just like we have someone in the Olympics where you have the gold medalists, only the winners would appear, and those winners would receive a a, a crown uh, that's made out of a, a wreath, basically, wreath crowns they would receive that would be placed on their head rather than a gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal. Abema was not only a place where legal cases were judged, it was a place where the winners would show up from the athletic games and rewards would be dispensed to them, honor would be dispensed to them from the Bema. And that just gives you a little bit of a feel when you see him using this term back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for what the Corinthians were thinking, what they were processing in their mind. If you go back to chapter 5 and verse 10, I want you to see again what it says. It says, we, as the believing community, the followers of Christ, those who have been born again, we must all appear before the Bema of Christ. He's writing to believers, and he's saying to believers, we must all appear before the Bema of Christ so that each one of us, everyone that is seated in this room who knows Christ personally, each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now right around people say, whoa, whoa, time out. I mean, now you're talking works. I mean... Reward can't involve works. You know, there's a lot of confusion about works. And what I want to do is take a few moments just to clarify. I want to be as clear as I can about this whole issue of works and good works. I want you to turn with me a little bit in the right of your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And this is maybe the most clear passage on the issue of works that we have in the New Testament. It's familiar to, to most of us, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. When it comes to the issue of salvation, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. You see, good works cannot earn for us salvation. If it could, then we could do certain good works and we would stand up and say, I'm pretty cool. Look at what I did. But works will never earn us salvation. You cannot, by doing good works, earn your way into God's family. It cannot happen. It cannot be done. In fact, if you go and you study the book of Romans, all of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 are there to emphasize and completely clarify that truth. Through good works, we cannot earn our salvation. Now, if you go out to school this week, or you go out to your job, or you go out to your neighbors, and you begin to survey people, and you say to them, if you want to get to heaven, if you want to have a relationship with God, what do you need to do? And you survey them, what are you going to hear them say? A great majority of them. What are they going to say? You need to be good. That's the greatest lie that exists in our culture today. You say to people, well, uh, what do you have to do to be forgiven? What do you have to do to, uh, to guarantee your way into heaven? And then people will just say it. They'll say, you need to be good. You need to be kind. You need to recycle. You need to break for animals. You know? <laughs> you, you need to not do any of the big sins. You know, you don't, you don't murder somebody. You don't do armed robbery. You be good. You work your way in somehow. That's what people believe. And the Bible teaches you cannot earn your salvation. You can't earn your way into God's family. In fact, in James chapter 2, verse 10, it says this. This is a really a fascinating verse. If you don't have a handle on it, you ought to have a handle on it. It says there, if you keep the whole law of God, but you mess up one point in it, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. See, that's what God says. It's not a matter of being good and, and stacking up good works to earn your way into salvation. It's like a, a giant piece of glass. You break one point of it, you've broken it. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn your way into God's family. In fact, really, in essence, what the Bible says is if you want to earn your way into heaven and earn your way into a relationship with me, here's all you need to do. You just need to be as perfect as I am as God. If you could just be every bit as holy and perfect as I am, you're in. But of course, none of us can do that. We can't earn our way in. See, it, it's never a matter when it comes to salvation of, well, Christ has done something and I'm going to add some things to it and that's going to make it. No, it's 100% what he has done. He earned it all on the cross. He bled and died for us. He paid the price for us. It is by grace, through faith, it is the gift of God. That's what salvation is. And I hope I'm clear on that. But what happens, I think, in the believing community is good works gets jettisoned out of the spiritual life conversation. 
and it ought not to be that way. I mean, look again at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Very clear. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works that we have salvation and a relationship with God and an eternal destiny in heaven so that no one can boast. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Why are we jettisoning good works out of the spiritual life conversation as believers? Ought not to be so. In fact, we looked last time at Titus chapter 3, verse 8, where he says to the believers there, he's actually telling Titus to tell this to all of the Christians, that as believers we should be careful to engage in good deeds. And then he says, because it's a good and a profitable thing to do that. As those who have been born again, we should be proactively and energetically be doers of good deeds. Not to get into heaven, not to become part of the family of God, but because that's what God called us to as his spiritual children. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You know what I find really bizarre? It's really bizarre to me. In spiritual warfare where we've got Satan and his forces involved, here's what they do. Satan tries to elicit people to do good works in order to earn salvation. He tries to encourage people to do good works to earn salvation. But he tries to detour believers from doing good works after salvation. This is kind of weird. He tries to encourage people who don't know God to do good works to earn salvation, which they can't earn. But then when we come to faith in Christ, he tries to detour believers from doing good works after salvation. You see, we're not saved by good works, but as it says here in chapter 2 and verse 10, we're saved for good works. Notice verse 10, interesting little phrase. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So that we would walk in them. Some of the translations said so that we should walk in them. Now, if you have learned another language, if you know another language, um, besides English, you will probably be familiar with something in language called the subjunctive mood. If you never really learned a language, you probably have never thought about it. But if you learn another language, you will learn that there is commonly, in most languages, something called the subjunctive mood. And when it says here in verse 10 that God prepared these good works beforehand that we would walk in them or we should walk in them, it's in the subjunctive mood. It's the mood of uncertainty. He created them beforehand that we should walk in them, but will we walk in them? Reality is, men and women, an evaluation is coming. An evaluation is coming. And the second part of reality is that God will reward 
faithfulness in the life of a believer. God will reward faithfulness. I want you to turn to what is probably the clearest verse on this principle that God will reward faithfulness in the New Testament. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter number four and verse two. Over, over again in the New Testament, we are described as believers and followers of Christ as stewards. And in chapter four of 1 Corinthians verse two it says, Moreover, it is required of stewards, that's you and me, that one be found trustworthy, is what it says in the New American Standard Bible. If you have a New King James, or you have an NIV, or you have a New Living Translation, it will say that one be found faithful. I just prefer that word because I think it communicates more clearly. God will reward faithfulness. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. You see, our faith in Christ will determine our eternal destiny. Our faithfulness to Christ will determine our eternal rewards. Salvation is a free gift from God. Reward is honor that comes to us for faithful choices that we make. Now Paul believed this, and he ordered his life around this principle. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter number four. I want you to see what Paul writes at the very end of his life. I mean, he knows he's not long for this world. And I want you to see what he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He believed that reward was honor from God for faithful choices that were made. And I want you to know in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we'll, we'll start with verse 5. He says to the believers, but you, here's what I want to tell you. Would you be sober in all things? Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but not necessarily to everyone, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He believed that reward was honor for faithful choices. Now, about now, <laughs> it's very likely that some of us are squirming just a little bit. And, and maybe you're thinking, rewards? I mean, I, I, this just seems to be wrong. I mean, that can't be right that that some believers are going to get some rewards and some believers may lose rewards? I mean, that just doesn't seem like that can be right. Well, if it's wrong, why did Jesus talk about it so much? If it's wrong, why did Paul talk about it so much? Why did the other New Testament authors talk about it? Or maybe you're squirming just a little bit and you're just thinking, wait a minute, now this is just hard for me to process. I mean, I thought that when a person believed in Christ and, 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 and we're all going to go to heaven having believed in Christ, that we were all going to be the same there. 
I mean, that we'd all get the same inheritance. We'd all get exactly the same reward. I thought that's the way it was going to be. Well, if we were all going to be equally honored in heaven, why all these passages? Why are they there? You know, even Jesus himself talked about some who would be great in the kingdom and someone who would be in the least of the kingdom. Never implied it was all going to be 100% equal. I appreciate what Donald Barnhouse has to say. He's the famous preacher and pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And in his commentary in the book of Romans, he writes this. He says, we can be sure that at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be a marked difference between the Christian who has lived his life before the Lord, clearly discerning what was for the glory of God, and that of a nominal Christian. He goes on to say, there is a reward for those who have grown steadily in grace, who have patiently continued in well-doing. All will be in heaven because of trusting in Christ as Savior, but the differences between them will be eternal. We may be sure that the consequences of our character will survive the grave and that we shall face those consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, maybe some of you are squirming for another reason right about now, and that is you're thinking this thought. Wait a minute now. I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. I've made wrong choices. And we could be here a long time talking about the mistakes that I have made and the wrong choices that I have made. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute now, I, I'm not perfect. I've made these mistakes. I've made wrong choices. Does, does failure in my spiritual life preclude me from having any reward in heaven? And I'd like to answer that with one word. And that word is Peter. My favorite character in the New Testament. You remember how it was uh, the disciples were constantly getting involved and having these arguments about who is the greatest? And you do remember, of course, that Peter was the leader of the group. You think some argument's going to break out without Peter being involved in it? Yeah, I think I'm the greatest. No, no, I'm the greatest. I'm absolutely the greatest. Well, I'm sure he said, I'm the greatest. I'm the leader of the bunch of the rest of you bozos. Started all these kind of arguments. And then it's kind of interesting, in, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus just gets through quoting from the book of Zechariah where it says the shepherd will be struck down and the sheep will be scattered. Remember what Peter said? <laughs> I can understand that. You look at the rest of these weaklings here. Something happens to you, Jesus, and they're all going to run and hightail it. Not me. I am going to be standing until the very end. Absolutely. All the others might run and hide, but not me, Jesus. Not me. And you know what happened, of course. Jesus gets arrested, and then you have the denial by Peter. I never even met the guy. And then he has to throw in all these multiple cuss words to try to emphasize that he's telling the truth. You look at the life of Peter, and you see pride, and you see cowardice, and you see unbelief. 
And then it just doesn't end even in the era when Jesus was there. In, in fact, later on in his life, he caves into the pressure of the, the legalists at Antioch. And you re, can read about that in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And Paul gets so upset, he says, I had to go to Peter and get right in his face. You idiot, what are you doing? You're just caving in to people. You're walking away from grace. You're out of line, pal. And here's what I want us to understand. Jesus knew all everything about Peter. He knew that he was going to make some wrong choices. He knew that he was going to have some failures. He knew that he was going to have some mistakes. But here's what's interesting about Peter. With all those screw-ups that he had, one of the things you'll notice about him is after he makes the wrong choices and after he makes the mistakes, after he has his failures and he gets confronted with it, what do you see in his life? You see repentance. You see him going, oh man, I did, I messed up. I did, I'll admit it. See, Jesus didn't see a perfect guy in Peter, but he saw a guy who made mistakes and poor choices, and then when he had to deal with it, he dealt with it right. And then, knowing all that about Peter, what, is, what does the Lord say to Peter? He said, you, my friend, are gonna sit on one of the 12 thrones that will judge the tribes of Israel. See, reward isn't for perfect people. But it is for faithfulness in our choices. And so, what that leads us to do is to say this, what are these rewards going to be? I mean, what are they going to be? What does specifically the reward mean? And just exactly how are we going to be evaluated? If I'm going to be evaluated, I'd like to know the basis of the evaluation. Well, we're going to delve into that next time you have to come next week for part number two but I just want you to know this it's going to be challenging to look at these things but I also want you to understand it's going to be encouraging you will be encouraged and challenged let's pray together Father we thank you for your word for how alive how powerful how awesome it is and the things that it teaches us that we need to hear and we need to realize that rewards are real they are real and that they can be lost. And Lord, help us to have clear in our minds that an evaluation is coming and that you will reward faithfulness. And we understand, we don't understand all about this. Much of this discussion is a lot like what Peter said about some of Paul's writings when he said some of those things are hard to understand. They may be hard to understand, but they're things you want us to know. Give us wisdom over the weeks ahead as we understand what it means that an evaluation is coming one day for each one of us and that you will reward faithfulness. Thank you for what you're going to teach us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.